When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The essence of a free government consists in an effectual control of rivalries. The executive and the legislative powers are natural rivals, and if each has not an effectual control over the other, the weaker will ever be the lamb in the paws of the wolf. The nation, which will not adopt an equilibrium of power, must adopt a despotism. There is no other alternative. Rivalries must be controlled, or they will throw things into confusion. With those words, the first Vice President of the United States, John Adams, highlighted the importance of the separation of powers and checks and balances, concepts that play a key role in the government as it exists today, but which, in his time, were not a guarantee. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. In our last episode, we left off with the executive departments being created by Congress. Though the Constitution did mention that there would be a, quote, principal officer in each of the executive departments, and that the president would appoint these officers, neither did it say what the departments would be, nor did it really specify to whom the officers would be answerable. Washington could consult with them, but would he be able to direct them? Further, would he be able to fire them should they not work out? Certain folks in the Senate weren't so sure. They started to wonder whether, as it was in the Confederation government, the officers of the executive departments should report to and be answerable to the Senate. As proponents of this viewpoint noted, quote, The power of creating offices is given to the legislature. Under this general grant, the legislature have it under their supreme decision to determine the whole operation, to affix its tenure, and declare the control. Others, including Representative Fisher Ames of Massachusetts, thought this to be ridiculous. Ames argued that, quote, It ought not to be possible for a branch of the legislature even to hope for a share of the executive power, for they may be tempted to increase it. And that, quote, The executive powers are delegated to the president. The only bond between him and those he employs is the confidence he has in their integrity and talents. When that confidence ceases, the principal ought to have the power to remove those whom he can no longer trust with safety. More important than Fisher Ames' arguments, however, was the fact that Washington agreed with Ames. Months before the departments were created, Washington had written to the French minister to the U.S. that, quote, the impossibility that one man should be able to perform all the great business of the state, I take to have been the reason for instituting the great departments and appointing officers therein to assist the supreme magistrate, i.e. the president, in discharging the duties of his trust. He needed help, but if the responsibility was to be his, then the authority to govern his assistance would be his as well. While pro-administration forces in the House managed to get through a bill giving the president the authority to remove executive officers without Senate consent, Washington met with Adams to get his assistance in working it through the Senate, with Washington implying that, were things to not go his way, he might resign. 
The Senate vote ended up in a tie, which meant that John Adams was the deciding vote. With that, Washington was given full and independent control over his departments. That is, of course, when he could finally fill them. One final word on executive authority. You would think that this would settle the matter forever, but this debate would go on in history. Andrew Jackson was attacked decades later for firing his Secretary of the Treasury because he would not obey Jackson's order to remove the federal deposits from the Bank of the United States, and then appointing another to carry out the task who had not been confirmed by Congress. Later on, Andrew Johnson would be impeached for removing Edwin Stanton as Secretary of War. Closer to the present day, Richard Nixon's removal of two attorneys general on a night that would come to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre would be one of a host of decisions roundly criticized in the scandal that was Watergate. Even to the present day, and Donald Trump's criticized removal of Sally Yates as attorney general shows that though Washington and the pro-administration faction felt that the war had been won, it was in fact only one battle in what would be a long-term back and forth between the executive and legislative branches. Hey podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. But for now, Washington had to turn his attention to filling his executive offices. The easiest choice was in having Henry Knox remain in his position as Secretary of War. As mentioned in our previous episode, the position was a holdover from the Confederation government, and the decision to retain Knox allowed for a smooth transition into the new government, as well as ensured that Washington had an officer in the department with which he was most familiar, who he knew, and who was used to taking orders from him. Knox was also an ardent Federalist, which would ultimately put him in good standing as the cabinet continued to develop over time. In terms of influence beyond the deliberation of the cabinet, though, Knox's department provided little opportunity for that. When he began his same role with the new government, the War Department consisted of Knox and a clerk. That's it. Think of that, and then think of the modern Pentagon. The Army itself only consisted of 5,000 individuals during Knox's tenure. At a time when the general public had an aversion to the idea of a standing army, and with the head of the War Department, though being a loyal and hard-working man, but not, quote, an original policy thinker, who was relatively passive. Knox was a safe choice for Washington, but not one with much possibility of leaving a major mark on the new government. Now, for those of you wondering why Washington didn't replace Knox with the man who he had given command of the Southern Department during the war, Nathaniel Greene, it is quite possible that he might have considered it, had Greene not fallen victim to the fate of an early demise that Washington at times feared was to be his. Nathaniel Greene had died at the untimely age of 44 shortly after the war. Thus, Washington was left with that other trusted member of his military family to aid him at the War Department. 
The other two principal department heads were a bit more difficult to fill. The other holdover from the Confederation government, John Jay at the Department of Foreign Affairs, was seeking something different and accordingly was named as the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Thus, Washington had to determine someone else to assume the helm at state. The young nation offered very few people with diplomatic experience from which to choose. Benjamin Franklin was in too ill of health, John Adams was already serving as Vice President, and now Jay's out. The list was growing shorter, but luckily, the U.S. Minister to France had requested to come home and was expected within a few months. Even better, the U.S. Minister to France was also the guy who had written the Declaration of Independence and had enjoyed the confidence of Benjamin Franklin while the two had served together in Paris. He had a couple of blemishes on his record, namely his tenure as governor of Virginia, but his diplomatic credentials were without question. It did not take long for Washington to decide upon Thomas Jefferson to serve as his first Secretary of State, but it would take Jefferson a while to take up the post. As with State, Washington's first choice for Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Morris, the man known to history as the financier of the Revolution, bowed out of the running due to his more pressing personal financial woes. But Morris recommended a young man with whom Washington was well acquainted, Alexander Hamilton. As you know from our mini-episode on Hamilton, the New Yorker had served under Morris while he was still superintendent of finance and had earned Morris's confidence. Washington did express a moment of concern over Hamilton's youth and inexperience in holding a top administrative post in the government, but Morris assured Washington that Hamilton, quote, knows everything. To a mind like his, nothing comes amiss. Washington took little convincing. In addition to putting him in charge of managing the largest department in the government, with 500 employees in the Treasury, most of whom were customs collectors at the various national ports, Washington also charged Hamilton with the task of developing a proposal for a new financial system for the nation, and to submit his plan in writing to Congress in at most 100 days. Psh, no big deal, said Hamilton, who set to work collecting information about the current revenue system and fiscal problems of the nation. There will be time enough to talk about Hamilton's economic plans in the next couple of episodes, so let's move on in our tour of the nascent executive branch. At that point, there were only two other positions to be filled. The United States Post Office had been first organized and directed by none other than Benjamin Franklin himself, and, though not a glamorous position, was still an important one in an age where communication was slow and sometimes treacherous, but the people were clamoring for information. When the department transitioned from the Confederation to the Constitutional Government in 1789, Washington decided that he would not retain the incumbent Postmaster General, Ebenezer Hazard, because he disagreed with Hazard's decision to return to a system of post riders rather than carrying mail on stages in 1788. Washington felt that this was a deliberate move, quote, to limit the circulation of intelligence about the new Constitution, i.e. newspapers. Washington, and indeed a number of folks in the early Republic, had strong opinions about their postal system. A good equivalent for early 21st century listeners is meteorologists. Their work is talked about by nearly everyone. Some people have their own armchair forecasts and discuss how the weather folks could do their jobs better. And if a meteorologist's forecast turns out to be wrong, there will be hell to pay. Despite the public scrutiny, there were numerous contenders for the post of Postmaster General, but Washington finally settled on a member of the Board of the Treasury, Samuel Osgood. 
Unlike in future administrations, the Postmaster Generalship wasn't considered a full cabinet position, though the department was one of the largest in the executive branch. The final senior administrative position was much more of a nebulous one. Just go ahead and take any ideas you have about the Attorney General and the Justice Department and put those to the side for the moment, as they have nothing to do with the Attorney General of the Washington administration, and indeed, for many of the early administrations. As historian Leonard White describes, quote, The Office of Attorney General occupied a unique position in the official constellation. It did not possess the status and dignity of a department, although after 1792, its incumbent regularly attended cabinet meetings. That's right, no Justice Department, and there wouldn't be for over 80 years. Continuing with White, quote, The Attorney General was thought of rather as the legal advisor of the President and department heads, and as an agent to whom Congress might turn for information and advice. But the government was merely one of his clients paying an annual retainer of $1,500, one half of the salary assigned to the heads of departments. In accordance with the custom of that time, the Attorney General was not only allowed, but expected to pursue his private legal work. Is your mind sufficiently blown? An office that we, in the early 21st century, consider as crucial to ensuring justice in government and in the nation was, in Washington's time, a part-time contract position and they didn't give two figs about conflicts of interest. Washington chose as his first attorney general Edmund Randolph, a fellow Virginian. Randolph is someone you will want to remember, folks. Hint, hint. With the cabinet post filled and everyone confirmed, including Jefferson, though he didn't know at the time that he was the Secretary of State, Congress adjourned on September 30, 1789. While his new officers got settled into their offices, Washington decided to do some PR for his new government. As a sign of goodwill and that he intended to be a president for all of the people of the nation, rather than just the Virginian president, Washington embarked in the fall on a tour through New England. He went from New York up through Connecticut, into Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and finally, the part of Massachusetts that we now know of as Maine. Besides just giving the people a chance to see him, it gave Washington insight into the industry and conditions to be found in this part of the nation with which he was not as familiar. There were annoyances on this trip, as travel in late 18th century America, even for the well-to-do, was not always quick or close to what we would call comfortable nowadays. The roads were often of poor quality. In Massachusetts, Washington wrote in his travel diary that the roads, quote, are amazingly crooked to suit the convenience of every man's fields, and the directions you receive from the people equally blind and ignorant. He also encountered some of the unique customs and laws to be found in various states when he found himself unable to travel as planned in Connecticut due to a state law forbidding people, quote, to travel on the Sabbath. His annoyance was further compounded when he had to sit through two sermons that Sunday by, quote, a Mr. Pond, which Washington pronounced as, quote, very lame. Mr. Pond, I think the president just threw some shade your way. Who knew Washington had it in him? Now, one would think that, with the president out of town, someone in the upper levels of the administration would stay in New York City to mind the roost. In reality, a number of the high-level folks were far from the Big Apple at the time. Adams headed back to Massachusetts to both visit family and friends, as well as to prepare for Washington's trip there. Edmund Randolph was just getting word in Virginia that he was being named as the first attorney general. Jefferson, of course, was still on his way across the Atlantic. Hamilton did remain in New York, 
but it seems like he was attending to personal business as well as professional. Certainly, he was hard at work gathering information and drafting plans for the national debt and fiscal system. However, he was also engaged in a minor scandal with his sister-in-law, Angelica Church. Angelica's husband, though being originally from what became the U.S. and having done business with the Continental Government during the Revolution, had in time moved his family to Britain and become a member of the British Parliament. Angelica had traveled back to the States in the spring to visit with her family, but as time went on, her husband was wishing for a return. Meanwhile, Eliza, Hamilton's wife, had been bedridden for a number of weeks and had remained in Albany with her parents. That left Alexander and Angelica in New York City, alone, together. As noted by Randall, quote, In a town of 35,000 people, there are long strolls through the streets and evening promenades on the Battery, his frequent arrival at her rented house, and her comings and goings in a now-familiar carriage were bound to lead to gossip. I know. The constitutional government isn't even a year old, and we already have a sex scandal. The more things change. Whether anything happened between the two of them or not is still up for discussion, and it does seem that Eliza still enjoyed a warm relationship with her sister, as she sent her a loving farewell note, though she could not see her off. Eliza claimed that she worried that they would never see each other again and could not bear the grief. Angelica was finally prompted to leave when she learned of the illness of some of her children and departed for England in November 1789. Angelica left around the time that Washington returned from his New England trip. As soon as he got back into town, Washington went back into his usual routine, attending Martha's weekly reception the evening of his return. Next time, we'll see the first major political kerfuffle of the Washington administration over Hamilton's plans for national finance and dealing with the national debt in an episode that I'd like to call, Take This Report and File It. Until then, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send them on via email to presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode, as well as past episodes, can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. And you can listen to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening to us from there already. I hope you'll also take time out to listen to our sister podcast, The Harrison Podcast. Links are available on the blog, and it's available on iTunes and Stitcher as well. It's further on down the road of presidential history than we are, as it deals with the ninth president of the United States, William Henry Harrison, but it might be of interest for folks who enjoy this podcast. Episodes come out on alternating weeks with this podcast, so listening to both will ensure that you'll have a new episode to enjoy each week. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.